name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amin. As Abuna mentioned at the beginning of the reading of the Synexarium, we read today and celebrate the first Sunday of the blessed month of Kiak. We have four Sundays of the month of Kiak that are very important in the cycle of the church's calendar, which lead up to the 29th of Kiak, which is the feast of the nativity of our Lord, God, and Savior, Jesus Christ. The four uh, Gospels of the month of Kiak are all taken from the very first chapter of St. Luke's Gospel. Today we read about the Annunciation of St. John the Baptist, and uh, next week we read about the Annunciation of our Lord, the Archangel Gabriel, who comes to announce the good news to St. Mary about the birth of our Lord. On the third Sunday, we read about St. Mary's visit to Elizabeth and the beautiful song that she praises God with, what we call the Magnificat. And then on the fourth Sunday, we read about the birth of St. John the Baptist and the praise of Zacharias. All of these are found in the very first chapter of St. Luke's Gospel. The word that we often use to describe this season of the church is Advent. The word Advent in English comes from a Latin word which means something that's approaching or coming, something that is about to arrive. And so we celebrate this season remembering and anticipating the approach of our Lord, God, and Savior who comes to us in the flesh, in Jesus Christ, our Savior. And there is a very special relationship in this season, as in all the seasons of the church, but perhaps especially in this season, between the relationship between memory and hope. Memory and hope. The purpose of Advent is, in a sense, to awaken in us the most beautiful memory of human history, the memory of God who enters into the world as a small child, who becomes one with us. This simple memory is a memory that not only gladdens our heart, but it brings us great hope and peace. And in fact, as we see this theme manifested so beautifully during this season, this theme of hope through the memory of him who came to be one with us, it reminds us that, in fact, everything that the church does is to relive these beautiful memories of God's intervention in human history. From the beginning of creation, through all the wonderful works of the Old Testament, and leading, of course, to the incarnation, death, and resurrection of our Lord, and the great event of Pentecost in which the Holy Spirit was poured out upon all the earth. And so, during the liturgy, of course, we take all of those memories and we, we pack them in this beautiful expression of praise and worship and um, standing in awe and wonder of the memories that God has filled our minds with that bring us hope, that bring us peace and joy. And um, we could say that, in fact, um, that this hope that we anticipate, that we, we wait for, uh, is also uh, put into contrast with another theme which is likewise important for us, and that's the theme of judgment. Perhaps we rather just focus on the hope rather than to bring something that we might see that distorts that view of hope. But in fact, what we see throughout the whole of scriptures is that these two go together, judgment and hope, judgment and hope. In fact, all of the old prophets, if we read the great prophets of Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and so on, 
these themes run through every chapter. The themes of judgment followed by hope. Judgment and hope. And so what is this cycle that is so prevalent and important even to us today at this moment in our own spiritual lives? First, judgment. What is the judgment of God? The judgment of God as we see in the cycle of the Old Testament narrative and the prophets is that a life that is constructed, a life that is constructed hostile to God, or a life that is constructed opposed to God, will eventually have to be forfeited, will eventually have to give way to the will of God. This is the judgment. The judgment is that man who desires to construct for himself his own vision, his own imagination of life, and this vision and imagination is in contradiction to the will of God, this will eventually have to be forfeited. And for the most part, we see that when the prophets announced this judgment to the people, the people denied, they ignored the warnings. And so we see the, the sin of what we call presumption. I'll get back to this in a moment. The sin of presumption. So judgment is a judgment on human presumption about God. The second, of course, is the voice of the prophets that announce hope. And what they affirm over and over again is that God is a, in the words of a great uh, Old Testament scholar, who I'll be quoting a little bit today, his name is Walter Brueggemann, uh, a contemporary scholar, uh, very well respected as he speaks about especially the prophets and the, the book of Psalms. And Brueggemann says that, that over and over again, God is affirming to his people that he is a future creating agent, a future creating agent who keeps his promises to build a new world that is built on his promises that are full of hope. So on the one hand, we have the judgment of God, which says that a, world, that a, a, that a humanity that is hostile to him and to his will will eventually have to be forfeited but on the other hand, he is a future creating agent who will renew the world in hope. And so, again, just as the people often did not listen to the prophets when it came to the judgment of God, likewise, they often didn't listen to the prophets when they announced the hope that was coming in the future. And this led to their despair. So think about, keep this in your mind as we reflect together, Presumption and despair, the two enemies of a relationship with God, presumption and despair. Despair says we cannot reach heaven. We cannot obtain God's promises. We are not worthy of God's love and his promises or his mercy. And this is the, the great sin of despair. Presumption, on the other hand, is a sort of exploitation of God's mercy and kindness. It's a false certitude of one's salvation that ignores the reverence that's due to God. So presumption says, oh, God is merciful. I don't need to do anything. I don't need to feel anything. I don't need to, I don't need to repent. I don't need to change my ways. God is merciful and kind and will deal with all of us in the same way. And in fact, 
this presumption is dangerous because it is not based on a false hope only, but it's based on a lack of love. Because presumption uses the mercy of God as an excuse for sin, as an excuse for rebellion, as an excuse for man to live independent of God. So in fact, man conceives of a life of independence from God, exploiting the mercy of God, but in fact it is a lack of love that causes one to be presumptuous in the presence of God. And St. Paul says about this very beautifully in the very beginning of Romans chapter 2, he says, how can you despise the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience? How can you fail to realize that his kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? In other words, don't exploit the kindness of God. Don't exploit his forbearance, his patience, but be reverent to God in your life. And then the hope will be that which bears fruit in your life. So Brueggemann says, the theme of divine judgment leading to destruction is an affirmation that God in holiness will not be mocked by Israel. So the judgment is that God will not be mocked by his people. But the theme of divine restoration, he goes on to say, concerns the conviction that God in his fidelity will never quit on Israel. He will never quit on the covenant that he made with Israel. So he says these two themes, no mocking and no quitting, no mocking and no quitting, come in sequence for the prophets, first judgment, then promise. Both belong to the character of God, he says. And this is exactly what we read very beautifully in the book of Job. We read about the Lord that says, he, for he wounds, what? but he also binds up. He smites, but his hands heal. Judgment and hope. He wounds, but he binds up. He smites, but his hands heal. Judgment and hope. And we see this judgment, of course, as we enter the season, this judgment falls on the shoulders of the Messiah of Christ. The cross that he carries on his shoulder is the judgment of all of us. Everyone from the very beginning of humanity who has mocked God, who has disobeyed God, who has gone against the will of God, the judgment that is due to that person falls on the shoulders of Christ. And that's why during this season we read much from Isaiah. And Isaiah, as if he was looking at the cross and he wrote what he saw, he said to us, yet it was our pain that he bore, our sufferings he endured, we thought of him as stricken, struck down by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our sins. He was crushed for our iniquities. He bore the punishment that made us whole. By his wounds we were healed. We had all gone astray like sheep, all following our own way, but the Lord laid upon him the guilt of all of us. All of us are sheep who have gone astray, and the judgment has come upon the shoulders of God's only begotten Son. And Jesus says to us that because he wills to bear this destruction, this judgment, this shame on our behalf, that what he requires of us is to believe in him, to unite ourselves to him, to be free of that judgment because he has borne it on our behalf. And this is when, when Our Lady, the Mother of God, brought the child into the temple you know the story, that beautiful story of Simeon the elder. He, held, he holds the child in his arms and says, no, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, for I have seen 
your salvation. Right? But he says, this child, he says to the mother, this child is destined for the falling and the rising of many in Israel and will be a sign that will be opposed. In some translations, it says he will be a sign of contradiction. The very existence of Christ in the world, the very presence of Emmanuel, God with us, will be a sign that will divide those who believe and those who don't believe in who he is and what he says and what he came to accomplish for us. And so we see that Jesus in his, in his preaching, he preaches judgment and hope. Judgment and hope. But here the judgment and hope is whether we believe in him or not, whether we follow him or not, whether we love him or not. He says, for judgment I have come into the world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may be made blind. I came for judgment that those who do not see, that is, those who are humble enough to say, Lord, show us the way, open our eyes, and he says, here I am. But for those who insist and say, we know our way, we have our path, we have our will, he says, then those will be judged as remaining in their blindness. But then, then he says of the same hope, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. So on the one hand, he says, my, my coming is a judgment. But then he says, my coming is not a condemnation of the world, but a healing of the world. So judgment goes with hope. Hope is the fulfillment of judgment when we accept the judgment of God. Again, judgment and hope in the words of Christ, he says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. What does a sword do? It divides, it cuts in half. It destroys that which is false. But we say he is the king of peace. And again, in the same, in the same, in the same word of peace that he uses in judgment, he uses to give us hope. He says, peace I leave with, I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled. I am the king of peace. So on the one hand, there's judgment. I did not come to bring peace until you make a decision, until you decide who you believe in, what you believe in, who you will follow. And then, when you follow me, I am the king of peace. And we see this within ourselves, this prophetic role as a church. We as the church, you, the people, all of us, we have this prophetic role like the prophets, we are like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. We have a word that is to be proclaimed to the world. Amin, 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 your death, O Lord, we proclaim, and your holy resurrection we confess. We have a word to the world that is a judgment to the world, but a hope to the world as well. Brueggemann says something very um, beautiful. He says, the church meets, the church meets like we're gathering right now together. He says, the church meets to imagine what our lives could be like if the gospel were true. The church meets to imagine what our lives would be like if the gospel were true. And to take this hope into the world, this imagination, this beautiful imagination of what reality would look like if we lived the gospel, if the gospel were true in our midst. For us first and then for the world.
And this is the prophetic word of the church in the Eucharist. What is it that we proclaim at the Eucharist? Christ has come, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. That's the word of the church to the world. It's a judgment, but it is a healing hope. Brueggemann says, the prophetic tasks of the church are to tell the truth in a society that lives in illusion, but also to grieve in a society that practices denial and to express hope in a society that lives in despair. Again, think about that. To grieve, to, sorry, to, to tell the truth in a society that lives in delusion or illusion, to grieve in a society that practices denial, and to express hope in a society that lives in despair. And then he says the, the gospel is fiction when judged by the empire. The empire here means the world and the powers of the world and the authorities outside of God. The gospel is fiction when judged by the empire, but the empire is fiction when judged by the gospel. And that's what we are meant to do as a church, is to live the gospel and to judge that which is fiction in the empire that is surrounding us. So we are, in a sense, he says, ordained to be people of God, people who are a people of hope, because we are in the image of not just, he says, not just the image of God, but we are in the image of a promissory God. We are in the image of a God who promises over and over again. We are in the image of a God who instills hope in us, and therefore we have in our very image to bear that hope. Brueggemann says, everybody knows that the world is, on, is, at, is at an edge. Everybody knows about the violence, abuse, and exploitation. Everybody knows that the world in our very moment is sick to death. But we are the ones who know he will come because we believe that quite specifically we celebrate Advent, which is the sense of being at the edge of newness. Contemporary cynics do not believe it. The world is hopeless, but we are not hopeless. We are at the break of God's future. The Lord will come in power and in grace to turn the hearts of the children and to turn the hearts of the parents, to turn us from despair and anger and brutality and greed and fear. We celebrate because we expect and we await. This is the, the, the identity of the church. And St. Peter in his first epistle, he says, Therefore, gird up your loins, that is, roll up your sleeves in modern language. Roll up your sleeves and be sober, be attentive, be vigilant, be awake. And rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Rest your hope fully on the grace that is yet to come. In other words, our hope is on Advent, the coming, the anticipation. Of course, the great anticipation of Christ coming again in his second coming. But every time Christ comes to us in his grace or in his mercy is something that, is, uh, that fills us with hope. And that's why St. Paul says that in the epistle to the Hebrews that hope, he says, we have hope as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. Just as you know in the, in the ship, when it anchors into the, the bottom of the sea, it, it remains unmovable by the waters and by the, and by the tumult of the sea. And for us, hope is that steadfast anchor in our life. But hope, St. Paul says, is, in a sense, only hope when you are in a situation which seems to have no hope. 
St. Paul says again in Romans chapter 4, who in hope believed, uh, he's saying this about our father Abraham. He said, Abraham, who in hope believed against hope to the end, that he might become the father of many nations. Abraham had hope against any possibility of hope. When there was no way to see hope, he had hope to the end. That's hope. So St. Paul goes on to say, now hope that is seen is not hope. If you can touch it, if you can feel it, if you can imagine it as something that is already present to you, it's not fully hope. He says, for who hopes for what he sees? If you see it already, you already have it. You don't need to hope for it. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it, he says, with patience. So that's why in the litany of the sick we say, the hope of those who have no, what? Hope. And the help of those who have no helper. This hope that we have is energized by love. The spiritual life is likened to, the, to a, a tall mountain. Each one of us, after our baptism, we set foot on, the, on this mountain and we begin to climb. And what, what invigorates us to climb this mountain, what inspires us to climb this mountain, is the great reward that waits for us at the top, Christ embracing us at the top, welcoming us into his arms, into his kingdom. And so this vision of continuous climb to achieve and obtain the reward and the promises of God for us are energized by the love of God. What eye has not seen nor ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man, the things which God has prepared for what? Those who love him, who love him. So this love is what energizes us to maintain and keep that hope. And this hope that we place in God merits great favor in God's eyes. He wants us to live in hope. The fruit of hope, of course, is joy. St. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, Rejoice in your hope. Be patient in tribulation. So rejoice in your hope. Be glad today in that which you already anticipate to achieve and possess fully in the future. Just as you are sure that you will obtain it, you are certain that it will be yours, you can begin to rejoice now in it. We don't wait for the joy of possession, but we possess the hope which gives us the joy. The, um, the famous uh, German philosopher Nietzsche famous atheist philosopher, he said, the redeemed should look more redeemed. The redeemed should look more redeemed. If we bore truly the joy of Christ's coming, if we lived with that love and that joy, then we as the redeemed would look more redeemed. Finally, a story about judgment and hope. An ascetic a great Abba of 70 years of struggle. He gave his whole life to Christ in ascetic struggles, and he had this thought. He said, Lord, after all of these years, I wish to obtain some favor from you, some vision about the, the mystery of your will, something that will console me for all of these labors that I have offered to you all these years. So he heard a voice from heaven that said to him, if you desire to see my glory, 
Go to the inner desert, and my mysteries will be revealed to you there. So the ascetic went deep into the inner desert, and as he was in the inner desert, a thief and a murderer rushed towards him. And he was lifting his sword to kill him. And the thief said to the elder, he said, It is good, elder, that I ran into you today in order to finish my job and to reach my, my, uh, my objective. He said, You see, we thieves who live as bandits in the wilderness, we have this custom and this belief in our religion that he who kills 100, peoples, 100 people will go to paradise. If we kill 100 people, we will go to paradise. So I have killed 99 people. And today, God has sent you into my hands in order to obtain my objective, and you will be my hundredth, and then I will be saved. So the elder, of course, looks up to heaven and he says, this is the, the reward you want to give me, Lord, for 70 years of ascetic labor. This is the consolation you want to give me that I asked for, that you, would, you promised to reveal your mysteries to me. So he began to grumble in his heart against God, knowing that his end was moments away. So the elder, beginning to panic, he thought to himself, well, okay, Lord, you know best, thy will be done. Perhaps this chastisement, this judgment, is for my unworthiness and my sins, which I did not recognize, that I didn't take an account of. And, and therefore you have given me over to the hands of this thief and this murderer in order for me to receive my due justice, my due judgment. The elder then turned to the thief and he said, My son, may I ask you for one favor before you kill me? He said, I'm dying of thirst. Can you just give me something to just wet my tongue? So the thief agreed, thinking what harm is there in giving the old man some water before he kills him. So he went to the nearby river. And as he was going to get the water, he fell over and died. He died instantly. And some time went by and the elder noticed that the thief didn't come back. 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 30 minutes. So he thought to himself, should I run? Should I escape? But if I escape and he sees me, I, I'm an old man, I cannot run very fast. He will catch me and if he catches me knowing that I was trying to escape, he will torture me and make my death even more torturous. So instead he said, I will go and look for the thief. So he went and he found the thief dead by the river. So he again lifted his hands to God and he said, Lord, who loves mankind, if you do not reveal to me this mystery, I will not lower my hands from this attitude of prayer. Have mercy on me, have pity on me, and reveal to me what is happening in this event that has unfolded. So the angel of the Lord came to the elder and said to him, do you see Abba, this dead man who lies before you? For your sake he was taken by sudden death, so that you might escape and he does not kill you. Therefore bury him as one who is saved. As one who is saved. For obeying you, the angel said to him, to the elder, for the thief obeying you, by returning his murderous sword into its sheath, in order to bring you some water to quench your thirst, he pacified the judgment of God. He pacified the judgment of God and was accepted as a worker of obedience. 
And his confession to you, that he killed 99 people, was accepted by God as a confession. So he obeyed you, and this satisfied the judgment of God, and he confessed his sins to you. Therefore, bury him and consider him to be saved. And by this, know the expanse of God's love and compassion. Hope, the expanse of God's love and compassion. For behold, God has revealed a mystery to you. And know this too, that all the toil of your ascesis, of your, of your ascetical practices, is acceptable before God. For there is no toil that is done for God's sake that does not come before him. Having heard this, the elder buried the dead man. Judgment and hope. The Lord binds and he heals. This is the, uh, the great theme of Advent that we reflect on this morning. May our Lord Jesus Christ, who came to be uh, a sword that brings judgment, that we might believe in him, follow him, love him to the end, and bring us the hope of his eternal promises, and to him be all glory now and ever into the ages of ages. Amen. We send you greetings with Gabriel, the angels sing hail to you.